This is the Scott Thompson Show podcast. Premier Kathleen Wynne has announced a uh, cabinet shuffle. This with uh, five months to go before uh, the next election. I guess a few reasons for this. Uh, some just simply had the had enough of it and, and stepping down, retiring, that sort of thing. Uh, perhaps others uh, looking at writing on the wall. But then, really, what does that writing say? To talk more about all of this, Genevieve Tellier is with us, Professor of School of Politics, uh, sorry, School of Political Studies, University of Ottawa, and is with us now. Genevieve, thanks so much for taking the time to join us. We appreciate this. It's my pleasure, Scott. Uh, so any surprises here? I mean, is this a good time to shuffle the cabinet? Uh, for Win, yes, I think that's a good time because it gives, uh, it provides visibility, and she probably needs that to build up to the next election. Uh, is it a surprise? I'm kind of surprised by the scope of the shuffle. We're talking about many people. It seems we don't have the official announcement, but uh, many names are circulating. So it's, 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 it's a, I think she intends to send a big message and say, um, I'm with many good people uh, that have the skill to continue with me. And so please re-elect me uh, in June. So with, uh, say, just under five months out, does this provide good momentum for her? Would it have been better to wait another month or so or or even later or do it sooner? Well, uh, uh, we could wonder why she didn't didn't make it before because we knew that uh, many key ministers were leaving like Dev Matthew uh, or Liz Sandal they, they already told they would not seek re-election and so why wait now and not do a shuffle in uh, in the fall uh, that, that being said uh, there were many important files to finish at that time uh, we're talking about minimum, minimum wage we're talking about uh, uh, university fees uh, pharmacare and so that maybe was not the good time at that moment to to have a shuffle uh, so maybe now it, it is uh, but this means that there are only four five months less for the new minister to show and uh, and try to convince voters that they, they are qualified and they are able to take on themselves the responsibility to to uh, to uh, manage uh, uh, important files so uh, I don't think there is a good Timing, uh, I don't see something bad going on, mm-hmm. uh, but th- that's the art of politics, I would say. So it's, it's to be attentive and uh, to make a decision. So it's better to, to make it now than not make it, I would say. Is this about a cabinet shuffle or replacement? Is it different this time because so many are leaving or retiring? Yes, it is different. It is about showing a new team. It's about um, packaging what the government wants to do if re-elected. Um, the, the new minister won't have to present uh, to or to fight for new files or to have a new responsibility for say. We pretty much know the policy that will be implemented until the next uh, election. So uh, no new surprises. The only surprises we could probably see would be when the budget will be tabled in a few weeks. Uh, but normally a pre-electoral budget, uh, it's about announcement. It's not about putting and imp- implementing a policy before the election. So it's more about intention than realization. How difficult will it be for these new candidates to get re-elected, not being the incumbent? 
um, it's it, this helps for them because uh, it gives them more notoriety and more visibility and also more power, more responsibility. So uh, if you are to decide to vote between two candidates and you think that one probably will make it into the next cabinet, that gives a plus. It's an edge for that candidate. So uh, I would say that for them it's a it's an advantage to for the new uh, for those who have just been nominated. Uh, so that's a good it's it's a good thing for. for to, for them to to be in, uh, uh, to be given those new responsibilities. How do you think the public will perceive this, Genevieve? Will they perceive this as uh, you know just a regular cabinet shuffle? Will they perceive this as oh some some longtime politicians are retiring, mm-hmm. or will they perceive it as you know uh, people leaving a sinking ship? Yes, uh, the, the word ca- came to my mind. It's cynicism, and so will people say, "Well, okay, the same tricks that the government is doing." Uh, and Kathleen Wynne has done that in the previous election when she made a shuffle just months before the next election. At that time, it did work. It seems uh, we'll see this time. Um, probably a mixture of all those um, uh, sentiments. I would say um, it, it's it's is the sink sh- uh, the ship sinking. Some will think, yes, the polls are very low. Uh, it's not given for the liberal to, to be reelected. far from that. Um, and so uh, people may see, well, uh, she may, uh, wind may find a difficult time to have uh, new faces to come to, to, to the cabinet. But on, this, on the other end, uh, the other message could be that, well, you see, there is an, a strong team that she yeah. already has, and that maybe could attract attention from others that are not certain that they want to enter politics. And they could say, well, it's not necessarily shrinking. There is a new uh, path going on where we could see, and there is this dynamics that's, that's occurring, and so why not join? So it could be both. Um, I'm not sure. I'm sure the opposition is, is going to sell change, but I guess if you have a new team, you can try to sell the same thing, can you not? Yes, you can, and that's probably the main message we have to gain from the, this shuffle. A shuffle is a change, so uh, not only the Liberals are talking about change, they are they are in fact doing some changes. So what is Wynne doing is that, well, you see my team will be different. Now, the thing is that uh, Kathleen Wynne herself, a few years ago, she was the manifestation of change, and it didn't seem to resonate in the mm. electorate. And so her polling is very low because she kind of is continuity with the former uh, premier. And so uh, hopefully she's looking for change, but will that take effect? That that's it. That is for to, to be seen. What about her leadership? Uh, does she have to let Ontarians know what her plans are before the next election? Um, analysts, uh, journalists, observers all wish that the uh, Premier would comment on that, but I think it's a safe thing for her not to expand on that. Um, yes, she's not very popular, uh, but part, her party is doing better. Um, it's, she will stay until the next election, that's for sure. Uh, will she step down if she lose? Uh, probably yes, but you will never have a premier that would publicly say that uh, because it's kind of conceding defeat before right. it occurs. So, uh, so you won't risk take that risk. Um, the question has been risen, has been raised many times over the year about the leadership of Kathleen Wynne. Uh, but what we see is that we don't really see contenders showing up and saying, mm. "Okay, I want to take the place of Kathleen Wynne," like we saw on the federal scene between uh, Paul Martin and Jean Chrétien, for instance. That doesn't occur currently in Ontario. What if she wins the next election? Do you think she'll step down shortly after? But as you mentioned, who's waiting in the wings? 
who's waiting? If, is she tired to do the job? Uh, is she doing it for the public good? And uh, once she's done, uh, she's been re-elected. She wants to uh, give the place to uh, other one. Uh, I haven't. Not, I have not seen any manifestation of that. So I would be very surprised. Uh, she doesn't seem to uh, dislike her job. Uh, she seems to like it. So uh, that would be a surprise for me. You talked about uh, how you were surprised at the scope of of the changes. Why is that? Um, we're talking about eight ministers out of 30 about, so uh, about a quarter of people that will be shift. So some will stay in cabinet but move to more senior position. New will come also. Um, and so we'll see new faces. Um, also, also the composition. Uh, many women are given new responsibility or are, are coming in. So I think that's also a signal that we want fresh blood. So uh, we're going more with uh, new ideas or uh, innovation, I would say, instead of seniority. So that's also something I see in that shuffle. But uh, eight person, eight person to talk about for the coming days. That's a lot. That's that's. That's good for to attract attention. Uh, a cabinet shuffle uh, attracting uh, attracting attention. Then, of course, uh, a budget on the way shortly afterwards. Uh, this is obviously going to be an election budget. Uh, any uh, any sort of uh, guesses as to what we may see in this budget? Um, so I, I was so surprised during the last budget all the time. Each year I was I saw things I was not expecting in the budget, and so I'll be cautious this time. Um, but what I have seen over the last year was much more a budget that was uh, aiming towards a left-wing uh, electorate, mm-hmm. so more progressive, more uh, interventionist, I would say. Um, we don't want to restrain the state intervention. We want to do more things. So uh, I would see more uh, initiative about uh, child care, about pharmacare, senior health. I, I, the, the usual uh, suspect, I would say. I, I wouldn't be surprised. Um, but at the same time, balancing the budget, which could be a strategy to counterattack uh, the conservatives, because conservatives uh, in the platform they presented in November, they said they would run a deficit mm-hmm. the first year. So that would be interesting to see how the liberal position themselves on that. But as you, you allude to, uh, a pre-electoral budget is more about promises for the coming mandate, more than about realizing something in the short run. So it's the messaging that's important, more than the action that will be taken. Uh, there's been lots of gifts uh, handed out over the last little while. Uh, how much more can they be, and does she have to address the spending in this? Uh, yes, that's the point. So, do we have? Is there more room to uh, to act within? Uh, is the economy going well? Uh, what will be the income that the, the province will receive? Now, the, the the big big initiative was the raise of the minimum wage that just occurred. Um, people will talk a lot about that, and we'll see. We'll we'll wait a few months to see what are the effects, and I'm sure we'll, some story will come up. And so, it's uh, for the government to adjust and to see. Okay, it's working as we plan or it's not working as we plan and, and we have to make some adjustments. So that will be the kind of thing I will be looking in the budget in, in the coming weeks. Where does this leave the NDP with the Liberals slowly inching more and more to the left? Uh, they have kept somewhat quiet. Well, we do hear them uh, 
publicly, but uh, we don't see a lot of new initiatives because the liberal have a tendency to to pick <laughs> what they like in the NDP platform and use it or own it, use it uh, for their own. So for the NDP, it's kind of frustrating because they come up with the idea, but liberals implement those ideas. Uh, it doesn't leave a lot of uh, room of maneuver for the NDP. So how could they renew themselves uh, and come up with some new ideas? which have us, have already been presented. So as we just said before, uh, budget resources are not illimited, so you have to work with that constraint, and so what's next? So um, I will be very interested to see what the NDP has to say. I wouldn't be surprised that they wait to the last minute so for the electoral campaign to be launched to start disseminating their ideas. But yes, it's not a lot left for them to act. So that's that's a puzzle for them. Uh, you, you talked about uh, popularity polls. Kathleen Wynne, obviously, at the bottom of that heap. At the top is Andrea Horvath. Uh, how do you explain that with her leadership and yet a party that nobody seems interested in? Yes, uh, it's always uh, do we think it's a good leader? We like the the way she behaves. We think she would, uh, she know how to lead a team, uh, but maybe people are less keen on, on the idea of a party uh, in general. So um, it, it's, it's really a puzzle. And we could say that for all three parties and for all three leaders. Mm. They don't seem to be a big enthusiast, uh, enthusiasm for the leaders, uh, but more for their what they represent or for their team. So for Andrea and Andrea Horvat, another problem for her is that we're talking a lot about changes, but it's now not so much the change she represents. She represents stability. She's been there for many times, and so mm. um, it's going to be difficult for her to keep that image of, of, of change and novelty and, and uh, please try and trust me, I have new ideas. And so, uh, yes, we'll see how it folds out. Uh, are you surprised we have not heard more from Patrick Brown? I mean, uh, I guess the, the strategy was to just let Kathleen Wynne, who was, you know, doing so poorly in the polls, uh, just run its course, but mm-hmm. it, what time do they start getting everyone's attention? I would be very concerned because in last November they presented their platform, so it's already uh, kind of strange to present an electoral platform many months uh, ahead, as they did. Uh, it was supposed to attract attention from the media, from a voter, and it didn't seem to do so. And it, it was a strange platform. There were many ideas that people were unsure about. Like I said, they, they say they would run a deficit the first year. Uh, that's not really a conservative initiative. So how, what what do you do about, uh, about that? Um, so they must be very disappointed. Uh, we don't speak about their idea that much. And um, they are also listening or looking at what uh, voters or the population is, is saying, like about the minimum wage. Uh, they don't really applaud the measure, but they do see that it is supported by many Ontarians. So how do you balance that? Uh, and so it, would, it is a concern for Patrick Brown, first of all, about his own recognition. People still have a hard time to figure out who he is and, and about the idea of, of his party. So uh, I would be concerned to see that it didn't work very well uh, in November and hopefully it will be doing better in the election. What do both opposition parties have to do as, uh, you know, as you mentioned earlier, uh, cabinet shuffle and, and then, a, a, you know, a pre-election budget coming? That's certainly going to give the momentum at this stage mm-hmm. uh, to the Liberals, you would think. So what do the NDP and the Conservatives have to do between now and the election? 
to say that they do themselves have a better solution for the problems of Ontario. And they still have to convince Ontarians that they do have some solution. And, and that's not clear. So if you talk about uh, hydroelectricity, what do you do? It's one thing to say, okay, I'm going to renegotiate the contract or I'm going to nationalize. Those are the proposals by the two parties. Uh, but how do you do it in, rela uh, uh, in reality? And what will be uh, the implication of that? And so uh, it's convincing that you have uh, uh, better ideas, better solution, and also a team. And so I think Patrick Brown is, is trying to do so. He has good new candidate for the next election. I'm thinking about uh, uh, Caroline Mulroney, for instance, uh, and continue in, in that vein and, and, and show that uh, they are the alternative. The Liberals have been very smart in the way they've strategically planned this in the sense that these are a lot of things that the other parties can't really change or wouldn't change if they were in power. I mean, you know, for example, uh, you know, the electricity rates and, and, and renegotiating the loan and pushing it farther down the road. Well, if you're an opposition party, what do you do to that? Do you say, okay, you know, that's wrong because it's going to make us pay more in the end, so I'm going to raise your electricity bills again. I mean, they're sort of backed into a corner. Yes, and the same thing with the minimum wage. Uh, could you fit exactly? Yeah. You would go back on that. No, and uh, pharmacare and student fees and, and that kind of thing. And so, no, it's. Uh, I think that the, what the policy, the policy that the liberal have adopted, will stay for a long time. Uh, you don't see that very often. Look at the federal scene. I mean, Justin Trudeau just uh, get uh, did get rid of every initiative that Stephen Harper has put in place. Uh, it's going to be much more difficult in Ontario this time to do so. Uh, because, uh, yes, they are a long-term impact, but also because they are supported by, uh, I won't say a big majority, but uh, an interesting majority of Ontarians. So it would be unpopular to reverse to the previous situation. So you say they were skilled. I agree with you. That's my own analysis also about the Liberals. You may not like their idea, but I think they were very skillful in the way they did implement it and also uh, package or, or present them to, to the electorate. And you look at even the minimum wage uh, debate of just last week, where all of a sudden Tim Hortons introduced themselves into the fray. I mean, that played right into it. Yeah. Uh, she made the comment and then stand and stood back and watched the fireworks with really no political capital at all. And it worked. And, it worked. Yeah. and, and, yeah. and yeah. one reason why it worked is because it has been uh, the, all the policy have been consistent. They are sending a clear message, which is we want to help the more in need mm -hmm. of the population, including the working. Uh, class uh, that is struggling because life is not easy, especially in big cities. And so uh, we are there to support you and look at what we are doing. This is exactly what we're doing. So that's the message that the Liberals have been sending. And it, they did not contradict themselves. They have, they have sticken to that message and it is effective. And so, yes, uh, once again, uh, a skillful strategy. I would mm. say. Uh, Genevieve, can you say, can you see the win Liberals winning again? Are Ontario still, are Ontarians still screaming for change? I can see them winning. I don't say that it will occur. Uh, if they win, it will be after a very difficult uh, campaign. Uh, but uh, yes, I do see the need for change, but I don't see an enthusiasm for an alternative for the other parties. So mm. That's why I'm, I'm saying that. So uh, yes, everything is possible. And on top of that, we'll have an electoral campaign, a, real, uh, a formal one, a month with debates. 
and we have seen in the past some uh, party leader uh, doing poor, <laughs> mm. uh, poor messaging, I would say, or, or taking poor decisions. So everything could happen, not just for the opposition, but also for the Liberals. Yes, as we say on Saturday nights, there's still lots of hockey left. <laughs> yes, there is. <laughs> <laughs> Genevieve Tellier has been with us, professor, Pol- uh, School of Political Studies, University of Ottawa. Genevieve, thanks for the time and insight. Much appreciated. It was a pleasure. You're listening to The Scott Thompson Show, weekdays from noon to 3 on AM 900 CHML. After less, uh, last week's uh, asshole comment from the president uh, gave the impression that immigration from these countries do not help the economy, or the countries uh, that they go to. Well, an op-ed piece in the National Post actually says immigrants from these countries to Canada far better than uh, some may think and are more apt to create work. Uh, To talk about this and basically the Canada system versus uh, the United States system of immigration, uh, Giddy Maman is with us, senior partner, founder of Maman Sandaluk Kingwell LLP. He's an immigration lawyer and with us now. Giddy, thanks for taking the time. Appreciate this. Uh, thanks. Thanks for having me back, Scott. So what are your thoughts on this comment from the president uh, regarding uh, these other countries in his derogatory term? Uh, any repercussions, any thoughts from people in your community? Well, obviously, you know, the, the consensus is that, uh, you know, these these indicate some form of racism on the part of the presidency. Uh you know, I I would like to give him the benefit of the doubt, and he used maybe in uh, you know uh, unkind uh, unkind language to describe the types of immigration that we get, let's say from rich countries versus poor countries. Uh, and in that question, you know, I believe what he was trying to get at, uh, you know, again, if I give him the benefit of the doubt, is a question: How come we have so much immigration from these, let's call them poor countries? Uh, and that's a good question. I think that uh, uh, the president of the United States, who believes that his country is a great country, uh, is wondering why are they coming sort of from the bottom end of the economic spectrum uh, globally? Why are they not coming from places like Norway, uh, you, you know, Western Europe, uh, places like that? I think that that would be a useful type of, of framework uh, to have this conversation. Otherwise, then we just sit there and discuss whether or not he is a racist or he's not a racist, and I'm not sure anything productive can come out of that. But we definitely, as people who, who practice in this field, uh, we look at these numbers and have some answers for why, um, you know, this, uh, uh, you know, some, some conclusions uh, that seem odd might uh, be actual uh, reality. Uh, why, you know, people from these countries may do better in Canada for example, than people from rich countries. Uh, Is this another example of the president's message getting lost in the sauce due to uh, the rhetoric? Uh, Because he keeps comparing his system to Canada's system and saying, we want a system like Canada's. So what's the difference between one and the other? Because we do use a merit-based system, do we not? That's right. Uh, we do use a merit-based system, and there's a real good question whether or not that system actually makes sense, and I'll, and I'll explain to you why. What we do is we basically have a policy that you can describe as selecting the best and the brightest, mm-hmm. which on its face sounds like a terrific idea. Um, why? You want educated people because you think that they're going to contribute to the economy better. But this is what actually can happen. You can bring somebody who has a PhD or has a, a medical degree, and he comes to Canada, and when he confronts, he or she confronts the real world, we find that there are entry points that cannot be bridged. 
Hmm. Uh, he can't get a job. So now he has a degree. He has great potential. But the industry or the professions don't let him in. So while you pick the best and the brightest, you're not getting the tax dollars from him because he's not working at his maximum efficiency economically. Now you take somebody else. You take somebody who is from a poor country who doesn't have a lot of education. So he comes to Canada and he doesn't qualify for any of these professions. And let's suppose he got in, if you were to ask me, well, how did, he, how did a person with no education come to Canada? Well, simple. He, he got married to someone mm. uh, who sponsored him. He didn't need to have an education. We let people marry whoever they want. Or maybe he came from a country uh, that was, um, uh, you know, uh, in a civil war. There was some sort of political or environmental upheaval or something like that. Mm-hmm. And he comes here. A refugee, here. yeah. Yeah, so, so the, the first guy who came had great expectations. He thought he was going to work in Canada as a doctor, and he's disappointed. The guy who came as a refugee says, I'll do anything. I'll work in any factory. I'll do any job. I'll do construction. And so he's employed immediately because he's willing to do anything. His expectations are very low. So now you have various degrees of you know, relative success, at least in the first or second year. That the doctor may never work as a doctor, and this guy, in a couple of years of maybe doing some construction, he has his own crew mm. within a couple of years, and now all of a sudden he's making a lot of money. Whereas the doctor is not going to go and start digging, you know, basements and things like that. That's just not what he wants to do. So there, there are, you know, this is the this is probably the most complex um, sort of story I think that you and I have talked about because there are so many variables and so many different things that affect what we think will be. Uh, the right outcome. Uh, in this case, does the left hand know what the right hand's doing? Because obviously it seems like these two situations are operating out of different silos and should be working together. In other words, yeah, we need to bring qualified people over, educated people are over, but we also need to provide a pathway for them to get to their vocation. Uh, th- that's right. And, and the fact is, so for example, let's suppose you don't even have those barriers, those professional barriers. Let's suppose you have somebody who comes in uh, to Canada and he is licensed as a lawyer. Uh, or a doctor, and he does get to work. Uh, industry sometimes would prefer someone with local talent. Uh, you know, they don't want to see an engineer with a degree from somewhere, let's say, in a poor country in Africa. They want to see that you have a degree from U of T. Mm-hmm. And so that person is, even though he's in the game, he's kind of uh, at a disadvantage uh, uh, in the game. Uh, so there, there are there are a lot of things. Uh, like that, that I'm not really sure the best and the brightest actually kind of works. Because right now we have jobs in Canada that are at the very, very bottom of the sort of employment pool, factory work, you know, working in slaughterhouses, Mm -hmm. everything from worm pickers to all kinds of jobs that we as Canadians don't want uh, our children necessarily to be doing. We want them to go to, edu- to university, get an education, go to college, university. We don't want them to sit there and cut fish all day long in a, in a factory. So we actually have uh, a bit of an inverted process. Before, in the old days, immigrants came to Canada and they worked at the bottom of the economic uh, ladder. They took all the menial jobs that we didn't want to do. But now we've inverted that process. Now what we're doing is we don't want those people. We want people like doctors or lawyers and engineers coming to Canada. And they come to Canada, they compete with Canadian-trained professionals, and they're not doing so well against them. Hmm. Whereas we have jobs in Canada that are desperately 
um, looking for someone to fill. For example, farm work. We have, farm, uh, we have farmers who are dying to bring in people to pick crops, but we can't supply enough of those workers to them. So uh, there, there's lots of different factors that we have to look at in formulating a policy. I always say that our immigration policy should be like a toolbox. You can't have a toolbox full of hammers. Hmm. You, you need different types of tools to get the job done. We need people at the bottom end, we need people in the middle, and we also need people at the top, and we need people who bring money, and we need people who we actually don't really need, but they're married to our Canadian citizens and permanent residents, and we really have to let them in whether or not they can make a contribution or not. But to just go out looking for hammers to fill your toolbox is not a good policy either. So the Americans, I think, can learn from that analogy that, yes, we should have a merit-based system, but you need somebody to cut the grass, you need somebody to uh, dig the ditches, you need somebody to cut the fish and you know, work in the slaughterhouses and do all that kind of stuff. Uh, you have to have it right through the spectrum. Does Canada's merit-based system need work then? You know, um, uh, the answer is yes, but I have to tell you that in the last, let's say, five years, uh, the system has become exponentially better than it was before. Uh, It still needs a lot of work. Why has it gotten better in the last couple of years? Well, first of all, we've come up with this express entry system, Mm. which makes uh, a lot of sense. Uh, It used to be that when you applied for immigration, uh, we had this tremendous backlog and you, were so, you, you jumped into the queue, and it could take five or six years before you got to the front. And by the time you got to the front, the occupation that was in demand five years ago is no longer in demand because we've had an economic turnaround. Under today's system, basically, uh, your application dies, your, your candidacy dies after 12 months. And if you are picked, you're picked pretty quickly, and you're processed pretty quickly, and you come in. Now, we can talk all day long about how many points we should allocate, let's say, for English or for language uh, or for education or something like that. But generally, we have a much better vehicle to bring in skilled talent to Canada. Uh, And uh, I would say a more fair system of selection. You know, the processing isn't exactly a fair system anymore because it's, uh, it's ruthless if you forget to put a date or a signature, or if you forget to put the translation of a single document, they'll send the whole thing back and your application is rejected. So there are things that we can do to fix the system, make it better, but it's a world of a lot better than, let's say, four or five years ago. So how does the Canadian system and the U.S. system compare to each other? They're very, very different systems. Uh, in some ways, the American system is easier. In some ways, the Canadian system is easier. Uh, it depends on the category. The United States, basically, there are two major entry points. The family-based uh, 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 petition, uh, so you're bringing your parents, you're bringing your spouse, mm-hmm. your brother, whatever. Uh, and then there's the one that brings you in via a uh, business, somebody who sponsors your application uh, for a green card or your work permit. And those are the two main entry points. Uh, Canada, of course, has those entry points, but we also have, for example, the humanitarian class. Uh, The humanitarian class basically says that anybody who thinks that we should let them in on humanitarian grounds can apply. And the United States does not have that system. So that's why, for example, in the United States, these kids who are in the DACA situation, kids who were, for example, brought to the United States by their parents when they were very young, 
they find themselves growing up, they can't get into university, they can't get jobs because they can't get work permits, etc. They have no way out of that system. They, there is no way of, of giving them a green card on humanitarian grounds. In Canada, we, we have a, a, a humanitarian program. It's very, very small, mind you, but it's there. So for the exceptional candidate, they can get in on that basis. So uh, in the end, is Trump wrong for uh, saying, hey, we need a system more like Canada's? And if he had just got to that point as opposed to, uh, you know, calling people names, would this discussion be far, moved farther along? Well, I wouldn't have used the language, especially in public, uh, that, that he used. That's a political issue. It's not a legal issue. I don't think he should adopt the Canadian system, uh, you know, in quotes. As I said, we need much more of a variety in Canada than we already have. I think if he adopted our uh, emphasis on the economic class, which is the best and the brightest, and adopted that whole, on a wholesale level, uh, that would be a tremendous mistake. Uh, I think the United States and the Canadian economies are identical. You need people all along the ladder, and you have to identify which industries have a genuine shortage and feed those industries. Uh, and that may be a little bit different for Canada. They may vary a little bit in terms of percentage, um, but that's how I would look at it. I would look at immigration industry by industry-wide. I wouldn't go by category. Uh, or do you think we are going to see changes in the immigration system simply because, uh, not only for these reasons that, that have come forward, but just even the, the situation regarding asylum seekers and people coming in that way? Uh, obviously, it looks like both countries are in need of some sort of tune-up. Well, whether they're in need of a tune-up or not, they're going to get a tune-up. It's going to be a major, major demographic upheaval over the next couple of years. There is no way around it. Um, to some extent, we are on a collision course with the United States, and in another way, we are on a certain path with the United States. Uh, we are, if, if, for example, by some uh, impossible way, the Americans were able to deport uh, the DACA kids and 10 or 12 million illegals, which will never happen, but let's suppose it did, it's going to create a huge uh, 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 gap uh, in the workforce that has to be filled from somewhere. Uh, secondly, those people actually have to go somewhere. They may not decide to go to their own countries. They may say, hey, uh, we're not going to put up with this. We're going to go and try our luck on the northern border. Um, and we don't know what's going to happen there because we don't know when uh, our prime minister is going to flip the switch and turn this whole thing off. We don't know how much patience he has and what number of refugees he's willing to see in the country come through the fence. So, um, uh, and, and from where I sit, let's leave all of that drama aside. Um, on a day-to-day -day basis, the system that we have right now is not feeding a lot of industries. We are not seeing enough people come to the, farm, uh, the farming industry. Personal care, for example, is a huge issue. Uh, Canadians are getting older. We're all getting older. We're not necessarily having that many kids. And when we get older, we're going to need a lot of people to look after us. And the question is, where are they going to come from? Are Canadians going to raise their children to go into that kind of industry? Or are we going to have to bring that, that uh, workforce to Canada? And if we do, what are we, uh, what are we going to have to do 
to attract that skill set? And how do we have to modify our program to get those candidates here and, and quickly and give them an incentive to come? So there is a lot of stuff that has to go on. Um, we also, internally right now, we have a board, a, a refugee board, which is completely stuck. It has a, a backlog that right now uh, they can't even handle, and that backlog is growing exponentially. Uh, and within a year or two, maybe, uh, you know, maybe this, the whole system is going to come down. Uh, we have the Salvadorans who in a few months, you know, uh, uh, their TPS is at, at risk in the United States. They're going to be on the move. The question is going to be, uh, you know, how how soon are they going to uh, how soon are they going to come to Canada? Are they going to come to Canada? In what numbers? All of these things are very dynamic. Um, right now, the United States are talking about a DACA bill. We don't know if that's going to succeed. It's being held up by the debate on the wall. And even if they have the DACA bill approved, then there's a question of whether or not they're going to be able to to pass a Dreamer bill uh, and get these kids landed. And we don't even know if they're going to do, um, uh, you know, sort of a large-scale immigration reform and try to tackle the 10 or 12 million uh, illegal number and try to keep some and regularize some or deport some. Um, all of these things are uh, all intersecting, and it's a very complicated situation, and we'll just see what happens. Uh, this time last year, we were talking about the many asylum seekers coming in, uh, also concern over the winter time about those coming in through Emerson, Manitoba. Uh, we're also seeing it in Quebec. Uh, pace of this slowed down quite a bit. It doesn't seem to be in the news as much as it once was. Well, that is going to be a, a situation that is a reaction to what the government does. So when the Haitians uh, were in the news, the Haitians started coming up. Uh, over the next few weeks, as the uh, Democrats and the Republicans try to figure out how they're going to handle the DACA, uh, we're going to you know, see a response and uh, what the decision is going to be and, and how they deal with it uh, is going to... Uh, influence uh, those people. Uh, keep in mind that those people who are in the United States uh, have a life. It's not a legal life, perhaps, but it's a life, and that it's not a life that they are going to abandon easily. So they're going to hang on to that life until the last possible moment when they see that it is no longer in their tr in their interest to stay there and to build a whole new life and deal with a whole new set of uncertainties in their life. So you know, as these deadlines come up, these TPS deadlines come up, uh, and as this legislation works its way through, we'll, we'll, we'll see what happens at the border. Giddy Maman has been with us, senior partner, founder of Maman Sandalak Kingwell LLP. He's an immigration lawyer talking about, of course, comments from the president and what this means to immigration and policy moving forward. Giddy, thanks for the time and insight as always. Much appreciated. Thanks for having me, Scott. You're listening to The Scott Thompson Show, weekdays from noon to 3 on AM 900 CHML. Another uh, teen eating challenge has appeared, although uh, we're just sort of scouring over YouTube here. There seems to be more now uh, warnings against eating uh, laundry detergent pods or dishwasher uh, pods. Uh, than there has in the past. Uh, or it, it seems now that the word is out that you shouldn't really do this, and uh, all of the YouTubers are now uh, informing all of their followers not to do this, which is, I, I guess, a good thing, but is this really new at all? 
Does anybody remember this PSA that, actually, I don't think it was addressed to adults or teens. I think it was more for preschoolers. But it sort of told you the same thing. Don't you put it in your mouth. Don't you put it in your mouth. Don't you stuff it in your face. Don't stuff it in your face. Though it might look good to eat. Though it might look good to eat. And it might look good to taste. And it might look good to taste. You could get sick. Yuck. Real quick. Yuck. Real sick. Real ick. Don't you put it in your mouth. Uh-uh. Tell you ask someone you love. That's right. Like a muffin or a beet. If you don't know just what it is, remember, boys and girls, don't put it in your mouth. Hey, what am I doing? I don't even like beets. Then don't put it in your mouth. Bye-bye, everyone. Yeah, you know, um, I don't know. I always I, I thought two muffin and beet was quite a, an unusual contrast, but what the heck? Uh, you know, you're writing a song; things have to rhyme, I guess. Uh, this uh, teen challenge, uh, I guess, first came. Remember the cinnamon challenge, where they were, you know, and then the sneezing ensued and, and all of that sort of stuff. Uh, then the next one is the Tide Pod challenge. Uh, but obviously, these can cause serious damage. You're basically eating poison. Uh, so why do we do this? And, um, you know, many times it's about, uh, the social media. It's about, you know, putting a cool video together, but this just seems, uh, odd to me. Let's bring in Gary Derenfeldt, social worker, yoursocialworker.com. He is with us now. Gary, thanks for taking the time to join us today. I, uh, I can't believe what we're discussing. I love that commercial little ditty. I won't get that tune out of my head anymore. <laughs> 60 <laughs> seconds of pure joy there, Gary. Put it in your mouth. That's right. That's infotainment <laughs> right there, Gary. That's infotainment. There's got uh, to be some comic relief when we're talking about teenagers who are doing this Tide Pod challenge, you know, chomping down on laundry detergent pods. Like, yeah. Well, you know, I remember the old days, if, uh, you know, you had a potty mouth, your mother would wash your, your mouth out with soap, but geez. Uh, yeah, they're doing it voluntarily here. <laughs> That's right. Look. Maybe they should swear first. I'm sure the swearing comes after. <laughs> Look, we, we can't understand this as crazy and dangerous as it is. Um, and the understanding is these are kids who are looking to increase their profile on their social media by doing harebrained stunts and um, thinking that, okay, the taste is awful, but, but I'm going to survive this. That's kind of a naivety of adolescence at the same time. So the, there is an objective here. Oh, absolutely. <laughs> you, you know, and here, here's what like, drives me mad, uh, Scott. There are some YouTubers who have uh, tens of thousands to hundreds of thousands yeah. to millions of followers. And lots of money. There you go. Yeah. And so all they need to do is a product placement, and bam, these kids are bringing in large chunks of change only for all the likes and exposure they're providing uh, to the advertiser. 
Hey, I wonder, are there are there scenarios? I wonder if Tide is actually advertising on any of these sites because, you know, moving product or run away from this sort of thing. Yeah, I think they're going to run away as fast as can be because they, they can't be associated with such dangerous behavior associated to their brand. They don't want kids dying the result of chewing on their pots. And, uh, and, and, and all, we're already seeing these sites coming down and uh, other sites going up saying, hey, kids, don't do this. Yeah, I, I know. So this is where it comes down to parental monitoring. we still got to have some inkling of what the heck our kids are getting into, even in adolescence. And but you know, Gary, if someone came up to you and said, Gary, your kid's chewing detergent pods. I mean, no. I mean, I know. maybe doing some other things, but that, no. Right, and, but here's the rub. You know, you can almost use it diagnostically. Um, any kid that has half a brain isn't going to do this. Any kid who is secure in him or herself, the likelihood of them doing this is actually lower. The kids that we are seeing who are doing this are those kids who will confuse getting likes with likability. Mm. And, and so... Um, Diagnostically, you can say if this kid is doing this, um, there's already some others, or there may have already be some other self-esteem issues yeah. going on, where they're seeking truly attention and confusing attention with being popular and being liked. So it would be pretty naive just to say too much time on our hands. No, they're trying to get attention. There's a purpose behind this. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. And so it would be flippant to say, you know, uh, that, that, that there's just they're just kids being goofy. It's too much time on my hands. You're yeah, missing so you're the missing real, the point, aren't you? The real parental intervention is not an admonishment. What are you crazy? Go to your room and a smack across the head. The real intervention is, you know, sweetheart, I'm worried about you. Maybe I haven't spent enough time with you. Let's go out and play hockey. Yeah. Right? So, so that they perceive that they are likable. And then we want to, you know, verbally tell kids, teach kids, that, you know, likability is a function of being nice, reasonable, having empathy for others, uh, doing good deeds. And this is what really increases a positive social status, versus just status for the sake of status. And this is how you explain, you know, like, you know, kids would do this, toddlers, because they just don't know any better, and they might think that these little pods are a dessert of some sort. But big kids are full aware of what these things are and what they can do to them. Right. So that commercial message is all about teaching young kids the dangers of these products who might not understand the difference. And, and so, you know, we approach the younger child very differently than we're going to approach the adolescent uh, engaging in the same behavior, but clearly for different motives. Where do you think this is going to lead? Because <laughs> what next? Hey, a flaming uh, gasoline Molotov cocktail. Here we go. Like, it, I mean, it, this is bizarre. Um, and I mean, we're seeing this with kids that go up in high places and take these wacky selfies, right? So here's the rub, Scott. Every season there's a new crop of teenagers yeah and so it's not a one-shot lesson and and that's the lesson for us adults sometimes we think that if we deliver a message once to the current population yeah uh that's um that's enough to address the problem but there's always a new crop of parents always a new crop of children always a new crop of teenagers and unfortunately no one is exempt the process of growing up 
And along with that, we'll have some who are secure, some insecure, some uh, who don't get it, and some who do get it. And as we mentioned, the reason teens are doing this when they know better, it, it, there's an objective here, and the objective is to get hits, likes, uh, on social media. Interesting yep. uh, column uh, by Laura, uh, Laurel Gregory in uh, on Global News site, why kids who focus on likability over likes are better off. Uh, talk a little bit about how uh, shallow and surface these likes are, uh, and and have we equated them to actually having friends? Yeah, and, and there's the rub. You know, in today's social media world, um, we have the logical fallacy. Logical in, in that it kind of makes sense, fallacy in that it, it's actually not true. So the logical fallacy is the more likes I have on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, etc., uh, the better off I am, the, 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 the greater my status, the better a person I am. And uh, unfortunately, many teens, and even adults, quite frankly, confuse that with likability, which is, as I said earlier, an outcome of your behavior towards others, where you're decent, where you're caring, where you're helpful, where you can put other people's needs ahead of your own, where you are empathetic and and. And, and can understand the emotions and, and meet the emotional needs of others. And so, you know, these other researchers are differentiating between getting the likes versus having the likability. And if you are getting the likes, it's interesting because those teens who concentrate on the likes come adulthood, they actually have more problems in life, including drugs, alcohol, uh, depression, anxiety, uh, more challenges in their relationship. Those teens who, you know, by virtue of their personality, concentrate on the likability, they tend to be more successful in their adult life. Uh, I'll play devil's advocate there. What does it matter if people like you as long as you got lots of likes? You got lots of an, you got a lot, an audience. That's what it's about. I mean, kids were, you know, they they freak over this Logan Paul kid because he's got so many followers. Yeah, and and that's unfortunately the short term thinking that that is not uncommon in some adolescents. And so, you know, the harm of that is that as these kids get older, they, they come to realize that they're going to have more difficulty making, keeping friends, more prone to depression and anxiety, the result of that, and more trouble getting along with others because they're just doing, um, shall we say, counter-social stuff. Hmm. So how do kids discover that that counter-social stuff isn't productive and a real friend is far more valuable? Uh, that's uh, you and I, as we are talking now, hopefully, I, I'm assuming it's more the parents who are listening in, not these teenagers. Yeah. And uh, so we give these messages to the, to the parents, again, so that if they see that their child is engaging in this, you, you use it diagnostically to wonder about, um, does your kid really feel liked? Does he have the likability? And to start talking with your child about that and engaging them in activities that help them to be liked. And, and so much of that is also related to volunteerism, doing good deeds for others. You know, I, I, my wife and I, we just got back from uh, St. Joseph's Villa. We, we take our dog there. He's a therapy dog. And um, people appreciate that. Then we feel good about ourselves because we're giving to society. So the degree to which we can, we can engage youth in those kind of uh, wholesome activities 
then they can increase their likability. Hmm. What is popularity? Do people have the same uh, definition of this? What is it? <laughs> you know, popularity is, is kind of like um, just that status thing. Popularity in and of itself doesn't mean that you're a decent person. It just means that you're certainly well-known. And so the bully can have popularity, but the bully also can have a pretty lousy life as a result of the bullying. And so we don't just want the popularity. We're going to come back to likability. And another word that I've used before is agreeableness, which really means being able to get along with others so that even if you have an opposing view, you can act decently with one another and be agreeable. So what's a friend? <laughs> what's a friend? You're my friend. I'm your friend. We'll hold each other accountable if we're doing dumb things. We're there to support each other in times of need. Uh, we have a reciprocal relationship where, where we do well by each other and wish each other well. That's a friend. The Logan Paul thing, he was the guy that uh, went into the suicide forest. Yeah. We know that story, blah, yeah. blah, 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 blah. Um, does he still have friends? I mean, he's getting a lot of uh, public reaction to this. He's getting a lot of people that uh, upset about this. Uh, what does this? What do we learn from that? What do we learn yeah, from this popular. experiment? I mean, do do we learn that friends on this platform are as fleeting as uh, you know as the moment? They are. That kind of popularity uh, is fragile and can be short lived. You're, you know, today you're the hero, tomorrow you're the goat versus the, the kind of popularity that is based on being reasonable, being helpful to others, even when tough times come, that kind of popularity is, uh, tends to be enduring. So will, in the end, this all help our social skills? Will we learn from this? Will this pendulum swing back? We've had this discussion many times, uh, you know, wondering if kids are coming back, but then the parents are doing pretty much the same thing. So where does this lead socialization? What does the neighborhood look like 25 years from now? 25 years from now, we will um, be discussing the same things, Scott, with a new crop of parents and a new crop of teens, it's just that the behavior that they will be engaging in to get that attention will be um, appropriate to the times. That being said, when we were growing up, Gary, it was, you know what, you're spending too much time watching TV. That's all they do is watch TV. Well, yeah, but that wasn't to gain the attention. So maybe we grew our hair long or maybe we bullied or maybe we smoked cigarettes back then to get you know, to feel popular and to be noticed. Uh, maybe we talked back. Some kids uh, were the negative, were the class clown. And, you know, so every time has its, uh, has its way that, that, that teenagers who, who do feel disenfranchised, who don't have that likability, will still seek to have... Um, uh, some attention. Plus, it's a lot different than that, I guess, simply because of the interactivity. Sorry? Uh, it's a lot different now simply because there's interactivity now, uh, well, interconnection yeah, as opposed to... And it'll be plastered throughout the world and caught up by all the media in a way that wasn't available to us. Like in the old days, we were just going brain dead because we were watching, you know, happy days. <laughs> we were watching some stupid screen. At least, you know, they're, you know, they're reacting to it. They're, uh, you know, there's a discussion. There's interaction going on. Is that good or bad? 
Well, you know, you and I are going to pine for the good old days. And so we can wax poetic and remember some of the good old days, but there were still some of these issues back then as well where uh, parents weren't as attentive to the needs of their kids. Some of these kids uh, would abuse drugs or alcohol as well. Would uh, Back then we used the term delinquent. Uh, you know, what, maybe we're seeing less of that kind of delinquency to garner attention and more of this uh, stupidity. So kids aren't uh, going from door to door knocking on yours and running away. Instead, they're doing this. Nicky, Nicky, nine doors. Do you remember calling <laughs> yeah, it do. that? Absolutely. <laughs> How old do you have Absolutely. to remember this? Stuff? I know. Uh, well, I, I think all we have to do is look at our driver's license for that answer, Gary. I, I'm 61. I got gray hair, and I can't believe I'm saying that. <laughs> there you go. Uh, Gary Dierenfeld has been with us, social worker, yoursocialworker.com, uh, talking about anything, everything from uh, swallowing soap pods. Don't do that, kid. Uh, to what a real friend is. And he's one of mine, Gary Deerenfeld. Thanks for taking the time. We always appreciate it. Remember, I love you, my friend. Back at you. The Scott Thompson Show, weekdays from noon to 3 on AM 900 CHML.